hope that he wants to give to us. Um, but we cannot start there. We can't start there. Uh, just like um, the candles get lit, but they start unlit. That's where we have to start this morning. Uh, it is a season of darkness, isn't it? I mean, literally, it's, uh, it didn't cooperate today. I was praying for a really dark and dreary day. <laughs> just how God works. Um, but anyway, pretend it's really dark and dreary. I know that'll be a stretch for you since you're not really sure what that feels like here. But um, this week, was it not? It was, it, it's just that season of darkness where you get up, it's dark. You, go to, you, know, you come home from work, it's dark. It's just dark all the time. I was driving the kids to school. I can't remember Wednesday, maybe it was. And we were all commenting on the fact that it looked like it was you know, 9 o'clock at night. It was, had the headlights on and driving like this. It, it was just dark. It's just a dark uh, time of year. I remember when we first moved to the West Coast, I was stunned that at 4 o'clock in the afternoon you had to have your headlights on and the street lights were on um, here at, at this time of year. Um, literal darkness, that's the season we are in, but um, as we watch the news, uh, as we just take a look at the world around us, we know that it is also a time of spiritual darkness. Um, and it seems, I don't know whether it's just me or not, but it seems like it's getting darker in many ways when we take a look at some of the world events. Let me give you an example. I'm going to show you a house. Hopefully this works. There we go. Anybody recognize this house? I'd be surprised if you did. Um, it's a place of profound darkness. The address is 11 Butler Crescent in Calgary. That might make you a little bit more uh, tuned into what this is. This is the house. This is the place where on the evening of April the 15th, 2014... Zachary Rathwell, age 21, Jordan Segura, age 22, Josh Hunter, age 23, Caitlin Paras, age 23, and Lawrence Hong, age 27, were fatally stabbed by Matthew DeGrude as they celebrated the end of the university school year. It's a place, as you can imagine, of unspeakable horror, a place of unfathomable darkness. And for me, that house is just kind of a picture uh, of of the darkness as we know it. Now, the darkness in my life and your life might not look or sound like that. But we all have those times, those seasons, those, those corners of our lives that, that are just dark. We understand that. We know it. We experience it in some form, in some season of our lives, in some area of our being. And maybe this morning is that season for you. So this is our context we talk about uh, hearing hope this morning. That's where we have to start. This, it, this is our context, and the context is darkness. And all of this is a backdrop to our celebration of Christmas, the celebration of the coming of Jesus, the dramatic breaking in of God into our spiritual darkness with the light of Jesus. Or as the prophet uh, Isaiah puts it, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Or as Phillips Brooks, an Episcopal priest from the late 1800s, puts it, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet, in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years. 
our Metemi tonight. My friends, this is the Advent season. This is the season where we, uh, there are a lot of themes going on. One of them is waiting. Lincoln talked about that last week, uh, where we wait and we anticipate the everlasting light who breaks into our darkness. Another theme. As we wait, we, we, we wait in the reality of darkness for Jesus to break through the light of the world, the everlasting light. Here's the thing. That little baby born in that little manger in, in that little far out place called Bethlehem, when he grew up, he didn't shy away from that same metaphor as about his identity. Let me read for you from John chapter 8. This is the grown-up Jesus. John chapter 8, beginning at verse 12, says this. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is vowed. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Jesus spoke these things, these words, while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. This is God's word to us this morning. I am... The light of the world, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I want us to spend some moments this morning focusing on that verse. In the verse, there's a metaphor. In the verse, there's also a claim. And in the verse, there's also a call. So walk it through with me. First of all, the metaphor. The light of the world. That's the metaphor. In revealing his identity, Jesus picks up on this on this, metaf- this magnificent metaphor, light. I want you to consider for a moment the, 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 the power of light. Light means many, many things for us. And I had my daughter um, yesterday, uh, she likes doing artwork, and so I had her do these um, visually so you could see them. Um, but consider for a moment the wonder of light. Light, first of all, is the basis of life right? The reality is if you and I, on this spinning globe we call Earth, if, if, if we lived any further away from the sun, we would freeze. If we lived any closer, um, it would burn us up. We're in that perfect sweet spot for life to grow. No light, we know. Um, there's no plants. The bottom of the food chain doesn't begin, and, and life is, is quashed out with no light. But when there is light, light is the basic source of life. Light does something else. Light also reveals what is around us. It reveals what's true around us. If you've ever been in a dark room, 
and tried to navigate what was around, you know it's very, very difficult. Light shows us what our environment is like. When you walk in this room, you can, you can see uh, the chairs and you can see the door, you can see things because the light illuminates it. it. It shows you what is true around you. It reveals information about the world around you. It gives you knowledge about your environment. It reveals what is truth. And light also is the source of joy. I never really thought about this one. But some of you can relate to this firsthand, particularly at this time of year. The lack of sunlight affects our mood. It diminishes our joy, right? People need light, not just for life and for truth, but also for joy and comfort. Just ask the little child who wakes up in the middle of the night afraid of the dark. What brings them comfort and joy? Light switch on. Light brings us life, truth, and joy. And I'm just scratching the surface of this metaphor that Jesus is picking up on. Do you see the, the magnitude of the metaphor? And it's, it's only when we get a sense of the magnitude of the metaphor of light that we can begin to enter into the claim that Jesus makes. Because he doesn't just talk about the light of the world. He says there, I am the light of the world. I want to take a few minutes to show you how incredible and profound this claim is. In the passage that I read for you in verse 20, uh, John puts in some details that seem puzzling at first. John says there that Jesus says all of these things in a certain part of the temple. And he says, and they didn't come to kill him. It seems like a, kind of a strange piece of information to put in the story. Why would John say that? Well, because evidently John realized that what Jesus was saying was pretty significant, that Jesus was making massive claims. And it's, it's as if John is saying, you know what, um, if you really understood what Jesus was saying here, you would be stunned that the religious leaders didn't walk right in at that point and take him out completely, didn't kill him if you understood the magnitude of what Jesus was saying. Why? What's the big deal in what Jesus was saying? Why was it so scandalous that the author is clearly surprised that no one stood up to kill him? What's the big deal? Well, you, you must understand the concept, or excuse me, you must understand the context in order to understand the concept. The significance of Jesus' claim is shown in the context. In verse 12, the, the very first verse I read for you, it says, that, it says this, when Jesus spoke again. Now, um, the word again is kind of a small little insignificant, seems like an insignificant word, but in this case, it, it jumps out. When Jesus spoke again, it means that he was speaking and, and, then, and then wasn't speaking for a while, and then we pick it up in verse 12, and he speaks again. So you have to go back in the narrative a little bit to see, well, when was the first time he spoke? And it refers back, if you look at the, the, the rhythm of the passage, it refers back to chapter 7, verse 37, where Jesus is speaking, it says, on the last and greatest day of the feast. What feast? Well, you have to go back a little bit further. It's kind of a sleuthing mission. You've got to go back in the passage a little bit further to the beginning of chapter 7, where we read that, that Jesus is in town for the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles or booths, the Feast of Booths, or, or, or the Jewish word Sukkot. It's a great feast. It lasted seven days. It took place in, in, in the, the darker time of year, after the fall season, after the harvest time. It was one of the three pilgrimage festivals 
that God outlined um, in the Old Testament law, three pilgrimage festivals where people traveled to the temple in Jerusalem for the festival. There were three festivals. There was, um, there was uh, Shavuot, which celebrated the giving of the Torah. There was Passover, where the, um, where the celebration of uh, being released from slavery in Egypt. And this feast, Sukkot, the festival of booths or tabernacles. People would come into Jerusalem from all over the place to the temple there. And this feast celebrated God's provision for the people when they spent 40 years in the wilderness. It's outlined in Leviticus 23, if you ever really want to get into it. It's outlined in verse 33 and following. This whole celebration of booths, seven days. During this feast, God's people remembered their wilderness wanderings. After they come out of Egypt, and they remembered what it was like to have no home. To, to be in temporary shelters. And so during this feast uh, of booths, in fact, even to this day, Orthodox Jews will do this. We used to live in a part of Toronto where, where you'd see this on the front lawns. Um, people, the Jewish people would build little makeshift huts, booths, as a reminder to them during these seven days of what it was like to have no home when they wandered in the wilderness, to have no crops, and to remember how God provided for them. And so they, for seven days, they would live in these little huts, these little booths. And during the week, they would eat their meals there. And the, and the, the males of the household would actually sleep in these little, these little booths, these little huts that they had built as a reminder of what their ancestors had been through and how God had provided. As part of the seven days, there was this water ritual that they would do in the temple to remind them from Exodus 15 how God provided water for them, that he was the true source of water. On the second night of this uh, festival, uh, this was a powerful night, four huge candelabras, uh, some scholars say around 70 feet tall each, massive candelabras were set up in a certain area of the temple in Jerusalem. It was called the illumination of the temple. And there were celebrations for each of the subsequent nights. People would come and they would gather around these illuminated um, huge candelabras the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, um, they say, was visible for miles around. It would light up the night sky, the illumination of the temple. And every night there would be celebrations, and they would sing, gather, and they would sing the halal, um, sing the verses from Psalm 113 to 118, those passages called the halal. They would sing them, and they would be a celebration of how God gave them light, gave their ancestors light when they wandered in the wilderness. Exodus chapter 13 talks about the Lord going ahead of the people in the wilderness, and going ahead by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night and illuminating the whole sky, guiding his people. In Exodus 13, don't miss this, God provided the light to guide his people. For years, this pillar of fire would guide the people. And then in Exodus 40, um, we see that this cloud eventually, God tells the people to build a tabernacle, and this cloud eventually comes over the built tabernacle, and in Exodus 40, we see it just descending on the tabernacle. The glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God, uh, guides God's people, and then eventually stops and rests down right on the, on the, tab- the tabernacle. So the people are gathering every year for Sukkot, the festival of booths, and, and, and they would light up the, te- the temple and they would remember all of this, that God's Shekinah, his glorious presence, had guided the people. He was their light in the wilderness. 
And then, in verse 37, the great day of the feast comes. It's the last day of the feast. It's the finale of the seven days, as it were. And on the last night of the feast, here's what would happen in Sukkot. These candelabras that had been burning would be removed on the last night of the feast. They would take down the candelabras. It's kind of depressing. But it was a reminder to God's people of the time in their history where, where, as the prophet Ezekiel puts it, God's glory departed and, and was not in the temple for generations. And it was a reminder to the people that the, this, the Messiah that they were waiting for, this, this light that would dawn, was still to come and it would invade their darkness and bring them salvation. It was the one night of the year when the darkness of their lives was most vivid in their imaginations. John 7, 37, on the last night of the feast, something powerful and profound happens. There's Jesus, it says. He's in the temple. He's in the area. He's there for this festival of Sukkot. And he's there. The candelabras are there. They're extinguished. And there Jesus stands. And right after, he talks quite a bit about um, if the people come to him, that he is water, and they will never thirst again. He stands up right in the middle of those candelabras, and he says these profound words. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but he will have the light of life. Do you see the context now? Jesus is saying, I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. And even better yet, I am the glory, the Shekinah glory light. That thing that you have longed for for so long is here. I am the very glory of God. I'm not like the prophets who pointed to the glory of God but I am the light. I am the glory of God. I am God come to you. I am the light of God finally come. I'm the light of the world. There's Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world. And in doing so, he is saying, I am the ultimate source of life. No one can bring you eternal life but me. When you surrender yourself to me, you experience real life. He's saying, in effect, I am the truth. I am the ultimate source of truth. I am the only way for you to know who God really is, for you to know truly the God who has created everything around you. The prophets reflect the glory of God, but I am the glory of God. And I am also the ultimate source of joy. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. That's a profound and incredible claim. But he doesn't stop there, my friends. He he goes from this claim to a call. He doesn't just say, I am the light of the world, and then sits down. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. As Christians, my friends, we are followers of the light. Some of you know this passage in Matthew 5, where Jesus, the light of the world, stands up, and his teaching, he says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. What does it mean to follow 
the light of the world. What does it mean for us, as Jesus says, what does it mean for us to be the light of the world? Scripture says that, um, that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. Christ in us through faith, indwelling us by his Spirit. So Christ in us, the light of the world in us, and we step out, and we are now, those who follow him, are called to then be the light of the world. What, what does that mean? What does that look like? Let me just fire some things at you that I want you just to ponder this week. To be the light of the world, we are called to live with integrity. Do you know what integrity literally is? It means being the same person when people are watching us as when nobody is watching us. That's what integrity is. In 1 John, this theme is picked up on. And talks in context of light. It's First John 1 says this, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in a light, as he is in a light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. I mean, it's another whole sermon in there, but just notice as I was reading it, it was reminding me that if we want to have proper fellowship with one another and unity together... We have to live with integrity. We have to live uh, in the light. When fellowship starts to break down in any family or, or any church context, it's because there's, we're not living with integrity. Our insides, as one of our friends puts it, our insides aren't matching our outsides. We're not living with integrity. But if we claim or if we walk in the light, then there, there's not going to be this two-sidedness to us. We're going to live with integrity. What people see in public is what we will be in private. And so we say, Lord Jesus, there is darkness in me. Would you continue to come and make me a man, make me a woman of increasing integrity? Make us a fellowship of increasing integrity. It means when we walk in the light and when we are the light of the world that we live attractively, bugs are attracted to light, right? There's something attractive about light. And when Jesus says in Matthew 5, you're the light of the world, he's saying, I want you to live differently. People should be drawn to you. They should literally find you illuminating. If Christians are not drawing the world to them, then we are doing something wrong. We should be living attractively. There should be something... Attractive. People should not be able to maybe at first say, I don't know why, but I enjoy being around you. Because we are the light of the world and people are attracted to light. And we're to live courageously. See, people of the light don't shy away from darkness. The light never shies away from the darkness. You flick on a light in fixture in a dark room and the darkness goes. We are to live courageously. We are to step into dark areas and live as people of the light and expose darkness. You want a dramatic example of what this looks like? Well, you remember this house? You remember uh, the, the, the place of immense darkness that I described it to be? I want to introduce you to somebody. I want to introduce you to Caden Osborne. You don't know him, but Caden purchased that house a few months ago. In uh, just a few weeks ago, on November the 27th, in the National Post, 
this article was written. I'm going to read some of it because it's powerful. It's, it's talking about how this kid, 23 years old, did something profound. It's been amazing, said Caden Osborne, age 23, the new owner of the aged bungalow where five students were killed in April during the city's largest mass murder. Mr. Osborne and members of his church were among the first to show up at the scene after that horrifying day. They came to pray. That was well before he knew he'd end up living there. The young plumber said his first impulse was to try to bring some life back into the house. My first thought was, wow, if somebody bought that house and took what was bad and turned it into good, wouldn't that be great? And there was this little voice in the back of my head that said, Caden, you're just the guy to do it. Initially, the idea terrified him. Who does that? Who goes and buys a house like this? The people I talked to, they thought I was crazy, he said. But the more I thought about it, the more I talked to people about the reasons behind it, I wanted to do it. And the article goes on to say, Mr. Osborne's intentions are positive. The religious young man who committed his life to Christ at the age of 18, National Post, who committed his life to Christ at the age of 18, sees living in the house as a kind of spiritual calling. He wants to heal the neighborhood. Already some locals have responded. Soon after he moved in on September the 14th, neighbors showed up with cookies and pie. I walked in, and it was like, this is my home. This is where I'm going to hang out and maybe raise a family someday, he said. It's kind of run down and old, but it's home. The article goes on. Mr. Osborne is splitting housing costs with three other young men. They include Nathan Mason, who had trouble finding a place after he left prison. He was living in the Salvation Army shelter when he was saved six months ago and met Mr. Osborne through church. It makes you a better man being here. I'm humbled. Now I'm working with youth through street ministry, said Mr. Mason, age 31. Stephen Morschbacher, age 31, wound up at the house after a missionary trip to the Netherlands. This is mission work, too. I realized I wanted to do something good, he said. And the article concludes this way. The men don't belong to any particular Christian denomination. They said they just believe in Jesus and the Bible. They are also quick to point out they don't want to proselytize or be seen as goody-goody Christians. So far, there have been no ill omens, no weird feelings, and they've seen no ghosts. Mr. Osborne concludes, angels live here, I think. National Post, November 27, 2014. Here's the best part. Here's the best part. The chalkboard in their kitchen has something written on it, and it's for all to see and read. It's the mantra for their new mansion, and it says this, Let it be known to all who enter this house that all who dwell under this roof stand as light unto darkness, just as Christ stands as a light unto the darkness of the world. Those who live here serve as his ambassadors and make a stand against the evil that once ruled here. Just as Christ will not let evil have the last say, those who dwell here follow that example and will not let evil triumph over good. Isn't that awesome? My friends, that's the call in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. And then he said, and now you are the light of the world. 
I am the light of the world. I entered this world to bring life and truth and joy. And now you, my followers, you are the light of the world, showing people to me. So live with integrity, live attractively, and will you live courageously? It might not mean buying a house where a mass murder occurred. It might. But in all likelihood, it might not. But what's the courageous thing God's calling you to do? Where is the darkness God is calling you to storm? You are now light of the world. And Jesus says, let them see my life and my truth and my joy in and through you. My friends, that's the call. From the light of the world to be the light of the world. This Christmas and beyond, that's the call. Pray with me. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. And you are the everlasting light. And we celebrated this Christmas. But God, don't let it just be sentimental. Don't let it be just nice Christmas carols. Let it be something that rocks our world when we hear your call to be the light. And then let us go out and storm darkness. Light of the world, our prayer is that you would enable and empower and embolden us to be the light in the world now. In Christ, our light, we pray. Amen.